And our passage this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 21, the last chapter in the Gospel of John. This is a resurrection story, but often we don't hear it on Resurrection Sunday. And I'm not sure why. It seems to be particularly fitting to people like us. And this morning we'll look closely at how Jesus brings the resurrection to his disciples and deepens their understanding of what he's just accomplished and just done. Young Christians, young theologians, young disciples, I want you to listen for the answer to one question this morning. And here it is. Why did Jesus go to the beach? It's a strange question, but that's what our passage tells us about. Why did Jesus go to the beach? What was he doing? What exactly was he up to? Listen and see if you can hear and find the answer to that question. This is the good news of the resurrection from John, the disciple, the apostle, who saw it and touched it and loved it in person. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin... Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. And threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples. After he was raised from the dead... And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. O Lord Jesus, our celebration is built around nothing other than the resurrection. The vanity of the stone and the tomb and the seal to think they could shut you in. The arrogance of death to think it could hold you down. And you flexed your strength and overcame them all. And walked out of the grave in glory. And it was all for love. Resurrected love. For your people walking in deadness. And it was the love that came to give them the fullness of God's peace. The fullness of his forgiveness and assurance. And so often, O oh Lord... We are the people who think death has won or is winning or will win. And we have this Sunday and every Sunday to be reminded death never had the strength to win. Forgive us for daily allowing ourselves to be overcome by the deadness that we fashion for ourselves. It is not our master. And it has no rights of authority over us. And we have no rights to give ourselves to it. So instead this morning, Lord Jesus, reveal yourself to us in your resurrection power in the same way that you did to the disciples on the shore that bright morning. And give to us joy to know death cannot win. It has not. It will not. And instead, Lord Jesus, we ask you to do for us what you did for your disciples on that morning. Do it this morning too. Feed your sheep. You know what we need. You know how we need it. Feed your sheep. And we will give you thanks. We ask it in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? Peter has gone off to die. He felt as good as dead, so why not give in to it all the way? So he goes fishing. That's Peter's death. The important thing to remember here is this wasn't a hobby for Peter, it was his trade. It was his former life. This isn't Peter's surf casting because it clears his head. 
tossing a few lines into the water because it helps him relax. And after all, it had been a tough week and a half, hadn't it? It wasn't like that for Peter. This is defeat. Peter is conceding defeat. He's gone all the way back to his old life. And we know this because he goes fishing at night. That's when commercial fishermen go out to do their work. When everyone else is asleep, the fish rise to feed, and the commercial fishermen go out to catch them. So Peter finds the family boat in the slip where it's always been kept. And he works the nets through his fingers without even having to look at them. For Peter, mending nets is like breathing. He's been away from fishing for three years, but it's in his blood. And he takes the rudder and he puts it under his arm where the wood has been worn away from use. And he leans into it with his ribs as they put out and he can almost hear the boards of the hull creak. Welcome back, Peter. We knew you couldn't stay away forever. It was all so familiar to him, but it didn't feel like home. Because, do you remember when Jesus tells the rich young ruler that in order to be saved, he has to sell everything he has. He has to lose his life. And be given a new one that he can't buy or provide for himself. And the young man goes away sad. Heartbroken because he can't part with his wealth. And then the disciples are brought into focus. Astonished. Asking Jesus, then who can be saved? And Peter speaks up. It's always Peter who speaks up. And Peter says... Lord, we've left everything and followed you. In in Luke's gospel, Luke has Peter saying, Lord, we've left our homes and followed you. Peter has died to this life. So coming back to it now feels like the worst possible death. This is double death. Dying to it once, turning his back on it, leaving it behind, then failing out there and having to come back to it again, embarrassed and making explanations for it. He'd gone off to be a disciple and he'd hoped to be the best disciple there was. And then he fell asleep in the garden and he cut off an enemy ear and he deserted Jesus at his arrest. And he denied Jesus at his trial. And all of the disciples had this same sort of miserable ending. And it was excruciatingly painful, even with the open tomb in the background. That's what we don't realize, I think. I think the worst time to be a disciple, the most confusing, the darkest time to be a disciple must have been that That period of days just after the first Easter. They were thrilled that Jesus was victorious. But the kingdom had stalled, hadn't it? Hadn't the kingdom program been entirely derailed? Even if Jesus goes on building his kingdom now, which incidentally, since his rising, he hasn't mentioned his kingdom once. 
But even if he goes on with building his kingdom now, can you build a kingdom out of disappointing disciples? That's what they're all worried about. Jesus is alive, but Peter's usefulness to Jesus is dead, isn't it? Jesus is risen, but Peter is not. And that's where we are in the story. So the failed disciple has come back to his fishing. And there's nothing comforting in any of this for Peter. The boat, the nets, the sea, the night, they all feel like a tomb. But even a dead man has to make a life for himself. So Peter turns his boat out to the open water and he drops his nets. It's the perfect story for anyone who has ever failed. Failed at business. A failed marriage. Failed at school or with friends. All the dreams that you concocted for yourself, you failed at, or a career path, a big plan, a sure thing, your view of yourself, what you were going to be, what you were going to do, what you're capable of, what you're made of, what you're worth. If you've ever failed, and John has written this for you, sometimes, Not always, but sometimes I look at the church and I think, maybe I should learn to fish. Just in case. Something to fall back on. And then Jesus stands on the beach. Look, the resurrection was an amazing event. It was the best dream the deserting disciples could ever stumble into. And John 20 tells us that they were so excited to hear the news that Jesus had risen that Peter and John sprinted to the empty tomb. And John won the foot race, but he stopped at the door. And Peter, heaving and out of breath, runs all the way into the tomb. And he makes himself unclean because he's entered this house of deadness. But Peter actually knows he's already unclean. And this new thing, whatever it is, this foreign, divine, unfathomable thing that Jesus has done, this will make him clean. But the boldness of that morning cools to cowardice by that evening. Because that same night, the disciples are all together And they're in a room with the doors shut and locked. They're afraid of the people and the priests. They're afraid of persecution. Jesus has just brushed off death like the dust of sleep. But the disciples don't know what to make of it. So Jesus walks through their locked doors. Like he walked through death's own locks. But he hasn't yet walked through the locks of their hearts. That's what they need. To hear Jesus say to them in their hearts, peace be with you. And now in our passage this morning, it's eight days later. They've seen the risen Jesus. This is the third sighting of the risen Jesus, John says. They know the resurrection has happened, but they still don't know what to do with it. Eight days after the fact. They believe in it. They just don't believe in it for themselves. 
On St. Patrick's Day, I was with some of our neighbors in the neighborhood. We were sitting on the front porch that evening. And we were talking, and, and one of the neighbors whom i just met that night was asking me questions, pressing me, trying to pin me down on positions and beliefs and opinions. And finally, I got tired of shadow boxing with him, so I just put my cards on the table. And I said to him, Look, I believe that the eternal Son of God, without beginning or end, don't ask me to explain that to you because I can't. The eternal Son of God put himself in a virgin's womb to be born the perfect life for people who think they're pretty good but aren't good at all. And I believe that he put himself on a cross to die the sacrifice of cleanness for people who think they're pretty good but are actually filthy with sin but they just can't see it. And I believe that he declared the tomb unfit to hold him even one moment, even one second longer So he took breath and circulation and the broiling of his cells back into his body. And he walked out of the tomb after having been owned by it for three days. It was a kind of front porch version of the Apostles' Creed. And everything I believe, I said, is implausible. It makes no sense. It's entirely illogical. And no one should believe what I believe unless Jesus makes you need to believe it. And that's why Peter the failure and his dead companions are fishing the river Styx. They're dead men who have gone all the way over to death because they've witnessed the resurrection, but they're haunted by its implausibility. They're wrestling with its implausibility, and they're losing. They have no idea what this means. Jesus is risen, but they are not. So Jesus comes to find them on the beach, and it's beautiful. It's strikingly, breathtakingly beautiful. The same Jesus who chased them through centuries of prophets spouting promises. The same Jesus who chased them into their own fallen flesh with his bizarre birth. Who chased them to the depth of their sin with wooden cross beams and nails as big as railroad spikes and pitch dark at midday. That same Jesus now chases his disciples in their slowness and unbelief. He is now chasing them out of their own tombs. So what does resurrection feel like? We won't know fully in this life, but we do know that the resurrection we'll enjoy one day in eternity future is reaching back into our present It's dealing with us now. Resurrection wants to begin its work with us now. What on earth does that feel like? John gives us these little snapshots in sequence, and they're dizzying when you stack them on top of one another. Resurrection feels like being lost in your own darkness, and Jesus breaking through with his clarity and light. Resurrection feels like working all night, stripped and sweating and slaving and getting nowhere. And Jesus with a word filling your nets with fish. And your inability 
you meet Jesus in his power. Resurrection feels like throwing yourself into the sea. Diving in and flailing and swimming haphazardly toward the shore. Once you ran away from Jesus, but now you're compelled to race toward him. Resurrection feels like dragging the boat to shore. It's so heavy, so loaded down with his goodness. Resurrection feels like Jesus with a campfire roasting the catch of the day and warming bread, feeding you full with love and compassion and forgiveness and grace because you couldn't feed yourself with anything substantial. Resurrection feels like expecting to be pushed away and being pulled close. It feels like going back to your old life but having to leave it again because it doesn't fit. This isn't where Jesus wants you. It's hearing Jesus say, No, I told you, Peter, you're not a fisherman anymore. You're a shepherd now. And you may be a deserter, but you're still my disciple. You're mine. Resurrection feels like hearts weighed down with the grief of our sin, knowing full well the weight of our sin, but being given wings of forgiveness to fly on. It feels like being a complete failure and Jesus giving you the most important job in the universe anyway. It feels like having our very personal denials of Jesus very personally kissed away by him, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And that's why Jesus has this very frustrating conversation with Peter. The repeated, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Peter's three denials were like Jesus' three days in the grave. Those three denials on Thursday night and Friday morning in the priest's courtyard, those three denials keep Peter buried. They are the mausoleum of his failure. So three times back and forth, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. You know I love you. You know everything. You know I love you. And with that, Jesus raised Peter out of judgment as easily as he had walked out of it himself. But really what Jesus was asking Peter in his puzzling, rabbinical way was, Peter, do you have any idea how deeply I love you? Peter, do you have any idea How far my love is willing to go for you. And really what Peter was answering was, yeah, I think I'm starting to get it. I think I'm beginning to see. I think I'm starting to understand. And that's what raised him And that's what sentences the wailing tomb to an awful emptiness. Our tombs can't hold us anymore according to this story. I'm reading a book that was suggested to me by a skeptic. My practice is I read what skeptics give me to read. I don't read what Christians give me to read. 
The reason is I already know what Christians think. What really interests me is what skeptics think. I want to know what they're asking. I want to know their suspicions and their objections. I want to know what answers they're searching out and the places they're looking to find these answers. This particular book is a novel about Jesus' childhood. It tries to fill in the gaps that the Gospels don't tell us about from Jesus' boyhood. It's a very uncomfortable book. It's very imaginative and it's very wrong. It's a blend of blasphemy and odd respect at the same time. But in the book, the boy Jesus tries his hand at resurrection and it goes very badly. In fact, whenever he tries to do this, he does it in a boyish, prankish kind of way. So with all this sweating exertion, working himself up into what looks like a seizure, he can make a dead woman get up at her own funeral and stagger forward Frankenstein-like for a few paces before she falls over stiff as a young carpenter's board. And the novelist comments on it by saying, in those days, he wasn't very good at resurrection. But that's not how John tells the story. John tells the story differently, and John says, Jesus is great at resurrection. Jesus is the master of resurrection. It's his. And he loves to give it. And that's why he's come down to the beach. Jesus on the beach has resurrection to give. The gospel is Jesus rose from the dead to raise us from the dead. A crucified Jesus can't forgive sins. But a crucified and resurrected Jesus can. A crucified Jesus can't make old, worn out, used up, spent things new and holy and useful and glorious. But a crucified, resurrected Jesus can. And a crucified Jesus can't make what is detestable, unsightly, not even worth being brought into the presence of God. Reconciled, useful, cherished, but a crucified and resurrected Jesus can. The love of Jesus for Peter didn't run out in the garden on Maundy Thursday. And it didn't die in disappointment and hurt in Caiaphas' courtyard. And the love of Jesus for Peter didn't even stop at the crucifixion. And it didn't reach its limits on the inside of a borrowed tomb. The love of Jesus for Peter declared the tomb obsolete. A thing to be discarded. The love of Jesus for Peter spilled out of the tomb. And now it's come to chase him down on the beach that he's run away to. Poor Peter, trapped in his doubt and confusion and in his inadequacy. He's still deserting. And in love and reconciliation, Jesus is still chasing and still calling. The love of Jesus has to find Peter in his old life, where Peter is carving with his own hands a grave of his failure and guilt and unworthiness. And the love of Jesus has to bring Peter out of that grave. The risen Jesus came to the beach to raise Peter. You're forgiven. 
You're loved. You're still called. And you're more useful to me now than ever before because you are raised. See, now Peter can begin to truly live and fear nothing. Now that he's been raised by Jesus, Peter can die for the kingdom and the gospel fearlessly. Not to prove his own worth, but to show the gospel's worth in his life. To say before the people who wanted to execute him for being a servant of Jesus, listen, life without the gospel is worthless. So if I can't have it, I don't want my life either. You can take it. You can have it. And so Jesus gives Peter this strange prophecy as they sit together. Down at the end of our section, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then in verse 19, John explains, Jesus said this to show by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Jesus is telling Peter, good news, Peter, you won't desert me again. You're going to be a martyr. Congratulations. And tradition tells us that when Nero had Peter crucified, Peter said he was willing to die for Jesus, but he was unworthy to die like Jesus. So they crucified him upside down. And I don't think Peter was ever happier in all his life. There was not a happier moment for Peter in all of his living. And that's what it feels like to be resurrected. To be lifted out of your failure and made useful for Jesus himself who does not fail. And more importantly, who does not and cannot and will not fail with you. And that's the good news of the resurrection. Jesus will not allow you to shrink your life down to the dimensions of your failures. They're terrible. They're costly. They're painful. They're shameful. Because really what we've failed at in each of these things is love. We're failures at love. But Jesus isn't. And he rose from the dead to burst the measurements of your failures at their iron-stitched seams. What Peter didn't know, and what most of us still don't know, is we're not defined by our failures. We're defined by resurrection now. He rose to humiliate our failures. And the resurrection means that Jesus takes our most engrossing failures and he makes them his eternal successes. He doesn't just wipe them away. That isn't loving enough. He accepts our failures. He makes them part of his own story. He redeems them. He salvages them. He converts them. He makes our worst moments, our worst performances, the canvases of his glory. So hiding and covering and defending and denying, they're not qualities that we can be known by because they deny this gospel of being raised. You are supposed to live in the dawning light of resurrection, which for now is shown in repentance and forgiveness. Forgiveness. Not pretending that nothing happened. Not putting yourself on probation. Not doing penance 
Penance does nothing but drive you further into guilt. But forgiveness and the brightest light of the dawn of resurrection after repentance and forgiveness is the most surprising thing, at all, thing of all. Peter certainly didn't expect it. The brightest light of the dawn of resurrection is ministry. That's why Jesus raises Peter, to give him ministry to do. Peter, feed my sheep. The forgiven know how to feed sheep. The self-righteous don't. The forgiven know what it is to be racked with hunger. Hunger for truth. Hunger for righteousness. Hunger for peace and comfort and assuring love. And the forgiven know what true food is. Love and grace and recreation out of utter deadness through the gospel. Look, the prodigal, the son who blew it as badly as anyone could ever possibly blow it. He was a terrible son. A terrible heir and business partner. An awful investor. And after all his failings, he comes back home. To be received in his father's vice-like embrace of forgiveness. To be peppered with and smothered with his father's wet, slobbering kisses of delight. The prodigal knows how to throw a party. And the older brother only knows how to kill it. What John is telling us in his gospel is, don't be surprised when Jesus comes to find you in your worst failures. Don't be surprised when Jesus meets you at the sight of your failings in the kitchen, in the bedroom, in someone else's bedroom, at the office, outside the liquor store. At the computer, at the massage parlor, or the strip club, at the casino, or inside your own head where you resolve to do better, you won't need forgiveness because you're going to do better. In the corners of your own heart where you make your own plans and you fashion new gods to answer all your questions and to take care of all your problems in the ways that you speak to your children, in the ways that you speak to your spouse, in the ways that you speak to your parents, in all the places where you spend all your time on all the wrong things. Jesus plans to meet you in the places of your failure because he wants to use your failures. And that's the amazing thing about redemption and resurrection. Nothing is wasted and nothing is useless. In his hands, your worst failures become sermons of amazing grace. And then you can say like David in Psalm 51, Now I can teach transgressors your ways because I know the story from the inside. It's my story. Now I can tell transgressors how good you are because you have been good to me. And Jesus says it this way. Feed my sheep. You know what it is to be hungry and you know what true food is. You raised ones. Feed my sheep. 
If you're a skeptic with us this morning and you've come to be with us because well, that's what you do on Easter morning. You go to church, even if you're not sure of any of it. Here's the one thing that I'd like to offer to you. Here's what conversion is like. When you've made of your own life an inarguable disaster, and you know it even if nobody else around you does, you're pretty good at keeping it under wraps and making it look different to the people around. But you know your life is a mess. Jesus finds you in the middle of that mess and says, follow me, don't stay here, come with me. And I'll forgive your failures, all of them, the worst of them. And you'll be one of my sheep. And better, you'll help feed my other sheep. If that sounds at all enticing to you this morning, then Jesus has come looking for you. To meet with you just like he met with Peter 2,000 years ago. Once I was called in to meet with the principal at our school, we had a discipline problem to resolve. And there were a number of other parents who had been called into the office to discuss the collective transgressions of children, you know. And there was a nervous parent among us who asked the principal in our meeting, is this incident going to be put into my child's permanent record. And the principal laughed and leaned forward and said, I'll tell you a secret. Your child has no permanent record. We don't have files on your children that we keep in the home office locked away in a vault. And all the parents We're relieved. Now, I've got bad news for you, and then I have incredible news for you. You do have a permanent record, and it's a book. It's thicker than you want it to be. And it has your whole life recorded in detail. Excruciating, painful detail. All the things you know of, And wish had just blown away with the winds of time. All the things that you don't know of, but still are yours. They're all kept in that record. But resurrection means, if you were allowed to open your permanent record, what you would find is the record of Jesus' life written deep and dark and deliberately right over top of yours. And glimpses of your life, glimpses of what you are and have been would still show through his record. But the more you look at it, the more you look at it, the more you can only see his. And your record closes with these remarks. Now, come and live a new life. Happy Resurrection. Happy Easter. Amen. And this is our celebration, Lord Jesus. 
our worst enemy, our most hateful enemy, our strongest enemy, death, is nothing but a stain on the soles of your glorious feet now. And our lives are the trophies of your grace. And here is the fruitfulness we crave. Let us delight in your surprising work with our lives just as you delight in what you are doing with us. We are all of us like Peter, deniers, deserters, failed disciples. And now make us even more like Peter, raised. Make us raised people who know how to live, raised people who know how to die, raised people who know how to enjoy the Savior and laugh in the face of death. Raise us, give to us your most lavish gift, and we will treasure it. We ask this from your expensive, but freely giving love. We ask all of this from your grace and your kindness. Amen.